So over uh, Thanksgiving, I helped my father-in-law put together uh, some furniture that he had bought for the basement. And one of the pieces was pretty easy. One of them was a little bit of a different story, though. There was, uh, he kind of bought like this TV stand with a small electric fireplace built into it. And as we began to open the box to get all the parts out, we, uh, there were kind of two signs that we were in trouble. Uh, the first one was the, I don't know, two or three pound bag of little parts that came out of it. All these screws and wood dowel rods of varying sizes and lengths. And we're like, oh no, this is going to be tough. The second, second sign we were in trouble was the instruction manual. Uh, somebody at this company thought it'd be a great idea to write, to put right on the front of this instruction manual how challenging the project was going to be. So there's this little meter, and on one side it had easy, and on the other side it had difficult. And the meter was about three-fourths of the way full, and they had bolded the word difficult. It's like, what do they mean by difficult? Because obviously they, they want you to still buy this thing, so like, okay, what's, what's going to happen? And then we begin to pull out wood panel after wood panel after wood panel labeled from A to, we got pretty close to Z, and laid them all out. And I could, I could not have told you, like, if part K was supposed to be a shelf or a cabinet door. They all looked about the same, roughly the same size. Like, okay, we open the instruction booklet. Step one, find panel A and put all these, glue all these little rods into different places, and put all these screws into different places. And the next step, find part B. Do about the same thing to that. And on and on, page after page, it was find this, find this little wood part, and put a whole bunch of screws and nails and glue some dowel rods into it. And I just kept thinking, page after page, when are we going to finally put the thing together? And for the first time in my life, putting together furniture, I got discouraged. No, I'm kidding. I've been discouraged from putting together furniture. But this one, I was, I, after every page, I was like, when, are, when do we get to, like, put the thing together? Like, when does it say, take part A and connect it here to part G? I was like, where is that going to happen? So finally, we got about halfway through the book, and every dowel had been glued in, every screw had been inserted, everything was where it needed to be. And I was like, okay, surely the next page we get to start putting things together. And then it was time for Jenna and I to drive back to Campbellsville. So I did not even get to put the thing together. My father-in-law sent me a picture later uh, that evening or the next, next day of it all finally put together and fireplaces on and all that. But the way we kind of put together furniture in a weird way is kind of like scripture. Because you know the Bible has all these parts to it. There's 66 books and they're divided into two testaments and there's all these scripture verses and somehow they, some of them connect to other places and they mean things in different spots and the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament for some reason. And you know they're all supposed to go together, but a lot of times you just sort of in frustration go, I, I don't know how these fit together. Like, you know, what does Obadiah have to do with Jesus? You know, like what, what do some of these Bible books have to do with anything? And sometimes it's just, it just feels like this is a very difficult puzzle to put together. What on earth are we supposed to do? And Christmas is this opportunity where God sort of, he starts to take all those little parts and pieces and he begins to plug them together and we start to see what he's actually been up to for thousands and thousands of years, for generation after generation after generation. And so if you want to turn in your Bible or on your uh, Bible app to Luke chapter 1 verse 26, that's where we'll be this morning. And this is a passage that, you know, if you've been in church for any length of time, you're probably pretty familiar with this. You've probably heard it just about every 
every Christmas season where Gabriel the angel comes to visit Mary and tell her about what's about to happen. But this is a passage where so many of the parts and pieces of God's plan, we see them begin to come together. So starting with verse 26, here's how Luke tells the story to us. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So in that part of the story, what sticks out to you? What detail catches your eye? Is it that an angel shows up? Like, well, that's really cool. Wish an angel would show up and tell me something, right? Is that what sticks out? Is it that Mary is a virgin and somehow God's going to make this all work? Is it when he says, Mary, you have found favor with God? Does that stick out? Is it that the title of Jesus will be Son of the Most High? He will be great. Whichever phrase might stick out to you, there's one in particular I want to draw our attention to because it's, it's sort of this one sentence where Luke takes a whole bunch of parts and pieces and begins to put them together. He says, he says that Gabriel told Mary, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So just for a few minutes this morning, I want to kind of put some of the parts from the Old Testament that make that sentence so powerful. When Mary heard that sentence, that would have meant so many things to her. That would have triggered a number of powerful emotions for her. So we've got to go all the way back to the first part. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And that is what we would call the first messianic prophecy, where Adam and Eve, the first two humans, uh, they sin for the first time in the Garden of Eden. And in, the mo in that moment, God says to Satan, because he has deceived them, he says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, you might be used to a Bible translation that says, you will, he will crush your head, but you will, you will strike his heel. And the reason for that is, in that verse, the Hebrew word for strike is the same. So, strike and crush are the same exact Hebrew word. So, God uses the same word to say what Jesus will do to Satan, Satan will do to Jesus. However, the important part is the location of the strike. Because if you strike somebody's head, that's a killing blow. If you strike somebody's heel, that's an injury. It's only a flush wound, you'll get better, right? And so Bible translations will typically say that Jesus is going to crush Satan. Because well, it's like, well, a little more emphasis, a little more power. But the important part is where this blow is going to 
happen. And so even from the beginning, God begins to detail, he's got this plan to help what Adam and Eve have done, to rescue them and save them. He's like, okay, I'm going to send a son who will finally crush Satan. That's the plan. But there are some steps in that plan that God begins to lay out. So he begins this plan by calling one man named Abraham. Seems like an odd way to start a plan, but that's how he starts it. And in Genesis chapter 17, in verses 4 and 6, he says to Abraham, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you. And kings will come from you. Now that's a very broad statement, because there's a whole lot of the family tree of humanity that comes from Abraham. But specifically, God also means in that, that there's going to be a very particular nation that comes from Abraham. And there's going to be a very particular king that comes from Abraham. So, God's now got to set to work to make this promise come true for Abraham. Because when he tells Abraham this, he has zero kids. It's really hard to have a bunch of descendants when you have no kids. And so Abraham and his wife Sarah, eventually they have a son. And God takes that son and begins to multiply his descendants. That's God's next step. He's got to fulfill his promise to Abraham. So then you, you know, work your way through Genesis, you hit the book of Exodus, and Exodus actually opens with something really interesting. I don't know if you've ever caught this, but it's around verse 6. There's just this little phrase where Exodus tells us that the descendants, the people of Israel, became numerous. It's a little nod. Ah, God did what he said to Abraham. Now you have a whole lot of descendants, numerous, so many you can't really count them. And the way God did that is he took, he took Abraham's grandson and his great-grandkids and he brought them to Egypt. And while all the other nations were having battles and power struggles for land, he just let Israel hide under the superpower of Egypt for about 400 years. And they began to multiply and multiply because they didn't have to worry about wars. They didn't have nations trying to conquer them. They were safe for a while. And then God has to rescue them from Egypt. And one of the things that God tells to Moses after leading Israel out of Egypt in Exodus 19 is he says this, Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God calls a man named Abraham, makes a nation out of Abraham, and then he calls that nation and gives them a purpose and an identity. It's like, every, everything belongs to me, God says. All the nations really are mine, but you are going to be a special nation just for me. You're going to be my priests. You're going to represent me to the world. You're going to be the ones who set the example. But if you're familiar with the story, you know that doesn't go so well. Israel doesn't do a great job being an example. Instead, they, they take after everybody else's example. And at one point, they say, hey, you know what, God? We don't really want you to lead. We want a king. All the other nations have a king. Why can't we be like them? They have cool stuff. Can we have that cool stuff too? And so God says, okay, fine, I'll give you what you want. You want a king? I'll give you a king. But you're not going to like it as much as you think. And really, with, I think, a wink in, a, in his eye, God is saying, let me show you how much better it would be if you let me be your king. So he gives them a king named Saul, and Saul's okay. He's pretty good for the most part. Makes some pretty big mistakes here and there. And eventually, God's like, okay, we need to call a new king. So God calls this young kid named David to be the king. And of course, uh, that doesn't do well with Saul. 
Saul's already pretty uh, prideful and arrogant, and he doesn't like that people, the people like David a lot more than him. And he gets pretty jealous, and he tries to kill David a number of times, and that's a whole episode. That could be a whole TV drama in and of itself. But finally, David gets to become the king. And when he does, God promises this to David. In the book of 2 Samuel, he says to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. In other words, David, somebody from your family will always be the king over Israel. That's the general meaning. But the specific meaning is the king is going to come from your family. And so when the angel says to Mary, you're going to have a son, and he's going to sit on the throne of his father, David. Ah, God's answering his promise in 2 Samuel. We're finally going to have that king that he was talking about. And so last week, we talked about how Elijah was considered the greatest prophet, and John the Baptist was going to be like the new Elijah. So Luke's first story is, let's introduce you to the new Elijah, John the Baptist. His second story is, let me introduce you to the new King David. His name is Jesus. So we have the new prophet and we have a new king. Now David wasn't perfect, but he was considered the greatest king of Israel because he was, as God said, David is a man after God's own heart. And it's interesting when, when God sends the prophet Samuel to, to call David, he goes to his, his parents' house, he meets his father Jesse, and he says, okay, uh, bring all your sons to me. And so Jesse lays out all of his sons, except he conveniently leaves David out in the field tending the sheep. And Samuel sees his oldest son and thinks, ah, here's a strong, handsome man. Surely he could be the king. And God says, yeah, not him. So he goes to the next son. And, the next, and every time Samuel, Samuel sees something in each boy, like, man, that boy looks really attractive. That boy looks really strong. He, he's got a good head on his shoulders. He could be the king. And God says, not him, not him, not him. And he gets to the youngest, and, he's, and God still says, not him. So he looks at Jesse and goes, do you have another son by chance? Yeah, David, he's the, he's the little one. He's out back with the sheep. And Samuel's like, bring him to me. And God says, that's the one. And in a weird way, God picks David a lot like God sends Jesus. David's the least expected guy to be king. Youngest, you don't pick the youngest, you pick the oldest. He doesn't seem like much, doesn't have the most striking appearance as some of his brothers. But in the same way, when Jesus is going to be sent to earth, God picks Nazareth. And I think even the fact that Luke has to say, Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Because I think people in Jesus' own day, if you said, hey, we're heading to Nazareth, they'd be like, where's that? Can you point that out on the map? I have never heard of Nazareth before. This is flyover country. This is that, I don't even know if they could have a stoplight, Nazareth. I don't know if they're big enough for that. And so Luke has to kind of tell us, you know, it, it's over in Galilee. That, look on the map, you'll find it. It's there, trust me. And so in just a similar way, God says, let me do something that you just haven't seen coming yet. Let me do something new. Let me do something exciting. And so if I was going to uh, sum up God's plan in just a few steps, and I'm just going to really oversimplify it, here would be my steps. Step one, God calls a man and makes him a nation. Calls a man named Abraham, turns him into the nation of Israel. Step two, God calls a nation to be an example to the world. He says, Israel... You're going to be my kingdom of priests. Step number three, 
God sends his son to the world through this nation. So where is Jesus going to come? He's going to come to Israel. He's going to be an Israelite. And step four, God's son will be the king who finally crushes Satan. So when the angel Gabriel says to Mary, you're going to have a son and he's going to sit on David's throne and his kingdom will last forever. A good Jew is suddenly running through the little Rolodex in their mind of all the Bible verses that they remember learning, all the little Torah verses about this moment, this person who's supposed to come. We've been looking for him. We've been waiting. Some people have come and said, it's me, or it's me, or it's me, and none of them worked out. And this angel is saying to Mary, he's coming. He's going to be your son. And so this is beyond exciting for her. And this means so much about God's plan. And all the pieces are starting to come together. So Luke reaches into the box and he pulls out Genesis 3.15 and he pulls out some references in Exodus and some places in Deuteronomy and some places in First and Second Samuel and the Psalms and the prophets. And he begins to put them all together into just this one sentence. And his kingdom will never end. Mary, you've been waiting for it. All your neighbors, all your friends, all your family, the whole world's been waiting for this. It's going to happen. It's finally going to happen. And Mary's response comes in verse 38, where she says, May your words to me be fulfilled. It's so simple. Mary's like, all right, I'm on board, God. Let's do this. Whatever we got to do, all right, I'm in. And what's interesting about this story is only a small group of people actually know about this. Like Mary knows and then the next thing is she's going to go visit Elizabeth, who, who is her cousin, who is six months pregnant with John the Baptist, and she's going to go tell Elizabeth. And the Gospel of Matthew tells us Joseph's version of the story, his perspective of how these things unfold. So as far as we know, at this point, three people know about the birth of Jesus, Mary, Elizabeth, and Joseph. Now, maybe Elizabeth told Zechariah, maybe he figured out that's possible, Maybe Joseph told his parents, I don't know, maybe some other people knew, but not a lot of people knew about this. Not until Jesus is actually born. Then some angels go and tell a bunch of shepherds, hey, the king's been born, go into town. And then a star shows up in the sky, which signals a group of wise men hundreds of miles away in Babylon to slowly make their way and visit. So I hate to do this to you, but I'm going to ruin your nativity set. The wise men were there two or three years after Jesus was born. Sorry, Jesus probably was about ready to start walking at that point, all right? But anyway, so the, eventually shepherds find out, eventually the wise men find out, eventually King Herod hears about it, but at this moment, maybe three people on all of earth know that this is about to happen. The greatest announcement the world's ever known, and there's not much of a red carpet. There's not a trumpet in the sky. There's, there's not a big fireworks show. It's just small. But yet, even though it's small, it has a really important lesson for us. Very important lesson. Because, you see, Mary, she seems to be a very normal girl. Teenage girl, she's got her whole life out in front of her. She's about to get married to Joseph. She's got plans. I don't know if she's been, you know, dreaming of the wedding and plans about what they're going to do and how they're going to decorate the house. I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't know in the first century what all they went through to plan and do all that. She's got her whole life ahead of her. And suddenly God says, hey, change all that. It's going to be a little bit different now. And Mary's like, I'm on board. Whatever we got to do, let's do it. 
and the reminder of the Christmas story for us, the arrival of this plan. The arrival of God's plan reminds us that God has a purpose for us. It reminds us that God has a purpose for us because just like he's used Elizabeth and he's used Zechariah, he's now going to use Mary. And before he ever came and talked to Mary, there's a whole number of people in the Old Testament God has used. He's used Abraham and Jacob and Isaac. He's used Moses and Noah. He's used Aaron. He's used Oholiab. He's used Joshua. He's used, he's used Obadiah. He's used Deborah and Ruth and Rahab, just to name a few. He's used all these people throughout thousands and thousands of years. God has been working this plan, and he's made it all come together. He's used thousands of people. He's used thousands of years to make it all come together. And if he can do that, what makes you think he can't work out things in your own life? If he can put together this incredible plan to save the whole universe and use all kinds of different people who had their own opinions and their own agendas and their own life plans, if he can do all of that, then surely he can work things out in your own life. And surely he can involve you in the process. Because God calls men and women to be a part of his plan. He calls people of all sorts of ages. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Moses was probably about 80 when God spoke to him out of the burning bush. David was probably a teenager when he went and killed Goliath. God uses people of all sorts of ages, of all kinds of backgrounds, and he says, hey, I want you to be a part of my plan. I've got something for you. I've got a part for you in this. And when it comes to figuring out what our purpose in life is, I don't know, maybe you've asked yourself that many times, like, what, what's the meaning of life? What's my purpose in life? What am, I, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to accomplish? Why am I here? We ask ourselves those questions. I think for a lot of us, what we want is we just want freedom. We want to be able to pick and decide for ourselves what we do. I mean, we're Americans. So it's like, hey, give me my rights, give me my freedoms. Let me blaze my own trail, decide what I want to do. Let me do that. But the reality is, our view of freedom being wide open spaces, no rules, no limits, do whatever you want, that's actually not freedom. That's called being lost. And have you, you, ever, you ever watch those like survival shows, like the Bear Grylls survival shows? Drop him off in a random place with just a few things to survive. He's in the middle of nowhere, and he is lost. I know it's a TV show, so he's lost. They know where he is. But when you just have no boundaries, no rules, no limits, that's actually not freedom. You know, they've actually discovered that you're actually most creative, not when you have no rules, but when you have lots of limits and constraints put on you. You're not actually really creative when you can do anything you want. You have all the budget, all the time in the world. You're actually not that creative. You're actually creative when you have a time crunch and you have a budget and you have a specific problem and there's only a few ways you can solve the problem then you're really creative. So I'll think, think about your backyard. I don't, I don't know how big your backyard is or what it looks like, but if you have kids, you probably really want a fence because freedom is actually not wide open spaces, do whatever you want. Freedom is actually a fenced in backyard because if you have kids and you've got a fence in your backyard, you know what you're able to do as a parent? Open the back door when the weather's nice and say, hey, go play, go have fun, enjoy it. And every once in a while, you'll peek out the back door, the kitchen window, to make sure every, everybody's okay. But generally, you're fine. They're in the backyard. 
They're, they're completely safe within your backyard. The fence will keep them in. The fence will keep other things out that shouldn't be in there. They can do whatever they want. And your kids know we can run around wherever we want in this space. We can play on the swing set. We can go down the slide. We can play tag or hide and seek. We can invent our own game with whatever we have in the backyard. But if you take down the fence, now it's overwhelming. Now you're like, you have to babysit your kids because they could literally go anywhere. If the neighbor's dog gets loose, they could come running through your backyard and bite your kids. Like You've got to keep an eye on them like a hawk. But when there's a fence, that actually gives them freedom because they know what to do within a certain boundary. And that's actually what God does for us. He gives us a pretty big backyard, but he does put up a fence. And so he teaches us what sin is so we know, hey, don't, don't stray over here, don't go over there. He tells us in many different verses who we are. He tells us what our identity is. He says, hey, you're, you're my priest to the world. He says to us, you are my children. I've adopted you as my own kids. Even though you didn't deserve it, I adopted you. As Paul puts it, we are ambassadors of Christ. So he gives us this identity language. He gives us some rules to follow, and that gives us a fence. So we know we can do anything within the fence, which is actually what freedom really truly is. And so God has this plan, and he tells us who we are and what we get to do. He, he kind of sets up the boundary, the mission parameters, and he says, you can do anything here in this backyard. And so for Mary, the angel tells, tells Mary, you have found favor in God's eyes. What's incredible about that is we don't know why. You notice that? Gabriel does not say, Mary, you found favor in God's eyes because you read your Torah scroll every day. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, Mary, you found favor in God's eyes because you get up at 4 a.m. and you pray. He doesn't say, Mary, you found favor in God's eyes because you're a straight-A student. He doesn't say any of that. Because when Luke uses this little word favor in his gospel and in the book of Acts, he only uses it to describe when God does something really good for us just because he, he's good. Just because he can. So it's not because Mary did anything incredible. It's because God is good. And so he says, Mary, you found favor with me. And I'm going to do something with you just because. Just because. And that's good news for all of us. Because following King Jesus means he already loves you. You already have his approval. You don't have to work for it. He's not like the dad who never says I love you or never says I'm proud of you. He's not like that. You don't have to convince him you're good. You don't have to bring home a good report card for God to say, way to go. He just loves us because. He involves us in his plan because. God gives us favor, which is so much better than we deserve. Because the Bible says what we deserve is death. But instead of death, God says, I found favor in you. How about you follow me? How about you become part of this plan that I've got? And just because of my love, just because I'm good, I'm going to let you do some incredible things. So Gabriel, he says to Mary in verse 37, he says, for no word from God will ever 
Do you believe that? Do you really believe that no word from God will ever fail? Yeah. Do you believe that statement without any conditions on it? Here's what I mean by that. Uh, Maybe you believe no word from God will ever fail as long as I don't mess up. Like as long as I don't make too many mistakes, God's word will not fail. Maybe you believe that. Or maybe you believe no word from God will ever fail as long as we don't make too many changes. Like if there's not too many changes in my life, if there's not too many life transitions, then God's word will never fail. Or maybe you believe no word from God will ever fail as long as we get the right people into office. Like maybe then it'll work out. Or maybe you believe no word uh, from God will ever fail as long as we win the culture wars. Or no word from God will ever fail as long as fill in the blank. But that's not what Gabriel said. He said, no word from God will ever fail. Period. He's used hundreds of people, thousands of people, over thousands of years to make his plan work. And you can, I mean, if you, you know, this, this is sometimes what keeps me up at night, is I sit and I think, what if there was an alternate reality where Moses just didn't, like he just didn't lead the people out of Israel? What would have happened? I don't know. Maybe he would have treated him like Jonah and not let him get away with it. Maybe he would have said, fine, Moses, if you don't want to, Aaron, do you want to? Aaron, if you don't want to, Miriam, do you want to? Miriam, if you don't want to, uh, I don't know, find some other guy. Do you want to? God would have figured it out. So what's so incredible is that God wants to use us in the plan, and even when maybe we mess up, maybe we're not as obedient as we should be, he still finds a way to make it work. Like, he still finds a way to redeem the whole world. He still found a way to have Jesus come and be the king who finally crushed Satan. And that's what he did on the cross. So do you believe that no word from God will ever fail? And let's just say, maybe if, you know, if you're not following God at this point, maybe, maybe for you, like, well, uh, I don't really know if I believe in a God like that. I don't really know for sure. Could you just, for the sake of the argument, just assume for a few minutes that it was true? Like, what if there really was a God, and whatever he said comes true? Nothing can stop it. What would you do? Would you follow that God? What would you be willing to give up or sacrifice to do what he says? What would it mean if the things that he said came true? Well, I just made a list. Just a, just a few things that Jesus said that, that came true and are still true. Uh, Jesus said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Jesus said, Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh later. Jesus said, Take heart, for I have overcome the world. He said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. He said, I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and comfort you and be with you forever. He's the Holy Spirit. He said, Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from dead to life. Jesus said once, it is I, don't be afraid. I think he said that in the middle of the storm. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And he was talking about a lot more than lunch. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Not just have life, but have a fuller kind of life. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I laid down my life for the sheep. 
And P.S., we're the sheep. I know, not flattering, but we're the sheep. Jesus also said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So if there is a God and everything he says comes true, then all those things are true. You don't have to be afraid. You're not forgotten. You're not ignored. You're not too broken. You're his friend. You're his child. He forgives you and he loves you. And so this Christmas, I want you to remember that God's plan is not just something that happened a couple thousand years ago and it's a nice story that we get to read and remember and it happened way back then and that's No, it's so much more than that. Christmas is something that, yes, it did happen back then, but it impacts you right now. Because it means that God worked out this plan to come and save you, and he worked out this plan so that he could put you in the plan too. He's got something in store for you to do, just like Mary. No matter where you came from, no matter what your background is, God's got something in his plan for you to do. And would you listen for it? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for for the gift of your presence. The fact that, as Paul writes in Philippians, you, you gave up your throne, you in humility, stepped down from heaven to live with us. And God, I'm so thankful that in many ways, you, I mean, you, you could have come in a, in a palace. You could have been born to a much um, bigger display of, of power. But instead, you were born to first-time parents. You were born in a little town that people could easily forget about. And for so many of us, that's, that relates to us because we, we don't grow up in a palace. For many of us, we we grow up and live in a town that a lot of people would go, wait, where's that on the map? And yet you still call us and you still use us, and I thank you for that. And God, I thank you that you are just such a good God that we don't have to do anything special for you to love us. Like we uh, We don't have to make you proud to get your affirmation or your love. You're just so good that you just give us good things anyway. For all this and so much more that we are thankful for, I pray in your name, amen.